Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent, for those who don't know, is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas that historically the church has used to help prepare our own heart. Advent means arrival, and we get to reflect on the arrival of Jesus through the Incarnation, and also anticipation that He's going to return. I love Advent. I love all things Christmas. It is my favorite time of the year. And this year we are focusing the next four Sundays around this word dwell. In John's Gospel, in the first chapter, it refers to Jesus as the Word, the Logos, this powerful animating force that isn't obscure, but is actually Jesus as the Creator. And halfway through the chapter, it says that that Word became flesh, that powerful animating force, a creative um, being became a human being. And that he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. So that word dwell is going to be kind of our focal point the next four Sundays. What does it mean that Jesus came to dwell with us? And so this Sunday, we're going to be looking at a certain dynamic of how Jesus came to dwell. And this is going to be revolving around the humility, the hiddenness, the humanity that Jesus took upon himself to be with us. It cost him something, not just when he went to the cross, but for him to become human was in and of itself a profound act of love. And so uh, if you are taking notes, just our four points today are going to be around the incarnation where Jesus is coming. Number one, the humanness of the incarnation the humility of the Incarnation, the heavenliness of the Incarnation, and the hiddenness of the Incarnation. And so we're going to begin in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed placed him in a manger because there is no guest room available for them. Uh, There's something uh, cozy and nostalgic about those words that are often recited around Christmas time. Um, And oftentimes those comforting, familiar verses, uh, if we're not careful, kind of lose their impact and their potency. And so I just wanted to reflect on just a moment here what we just read. That the God of the universe, creator of all things, was born. Not just born, but 
was born in a very humble fashion. That he entered into humanity. I mean, this is something that's mind-bending and that we could spend really the entire time here and beyond talking about it. But I just wanted to I just wanted to give you three things I've been reflecting on this week that have helped uh, get me out of the nostalgia and into uh, the epiphany of what this what this means. Just three three things to think about. The creator of the stars was in a womb that he created. Just God inside of Mary's womb is just a staggering thought. The second one is that the eternal one, the one that was never been created, yet created all things, existing for all of eternity, was connected to an umbilical cord. I mean, just, just think about this. The, that tube that connects the womb to the placenta and has these blood vessels that are carrying food and oxygen to the baby and the other vessels carrying away waste. Um, Think about that functioning happening with God. God in a womb. God connected to an umbilical cord. Um, And then the the next thing I've just been meditating on is that when this baby was finally born, it comes on the heels of what theologians call 400 years of silence. So when the Old Testament ends, we have no scriptures for 400 years. There's no prophetic word. It doesn't mean that God wasn't present, and, and maybe there wasn't speaking, but we have no record of God speaking. And then in that dark, humble hillside in Bethlehem, tucked away probably in a rocky cave that was normally reserved to protect animals from weather, there came a cry from a baby And that cry was the voice of God breaking that 400 years of silence. I mean, there's so much going on in this this passage of Jesus coming, not out of the clouds, not in this dramatic, powerful way, but the, the humanness, the earthiness, the... The, just the nature of how God came should never get past us. And the reason why I think this is so important when we think about the humanness of the incarnation is thinking of why. Why did Jesus have to come as a human? And you think about one of the, one of the ramifications of the fall was that humans for all of history have been trying to separate the body and the spirit, the body and the soul. Um, even currently in our culture, we have, there's a strong um, movement just saying that you are not your body. And, uh, and so there's a sense of like, you are something else and your body is just some sort of shell. And there's a lot of uh, lack of dignity around the body that we have. And then on the other end, we live in a culture that celebrates the body and gives no regard for the soul, worships the body and its image and its pleasure and its function. And what I think is so beautiful is in the incarnation, the the severing between the body and the soul 
was brought back into alignment where God, who is spirit, came in flesh. The, the dignity that bestows upon the human experience is profound. Tim Keller says it like this, Our God is the only God in whom matter matters. That there is something about the, the humanness, the physical body, the physicality, of what's going on in the story that shows us something about the heart of God. That oftentimes, I think especially within uh, the Christian faith, we can put a high value on spiritual things and a lower value on physical things. But what I think the incarnation teaches us is within the humanness of what Jesus was experiencing, we are called not only to care about spiritual things, but about physical things. We are called to care about the full person. Um, which is why all throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, it talks about how we care for the physical world around us, whether it's being stewards of creation, uh, especially how we care for the poor, those who do not have the resources, the clothes, the food that they need. Uh, because this is what the incarnation tells us, that God not only cares about the physical world, cares about our humanness and our bodies, but he entered into it and experienced all of that. The second thing that this story, as it continues, verse 8 says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Uh, two things here that are staggeringly humble. Number one, that the first audience who's invited to see the birth of this king are shepherds. Our shepherds, although they had an important job and that they were to care for livestock, specifically to care for those who were to be later on sacrificed in the temple, was considered to have one of the lowliest, insignificant, dirty, socially reprehensible jobs of the ancient world. Uh, to be a shepherd uh, would be a job that no one would grow up aspiring to be in our culture. Yet, yet it had a level of significance, but the fact that the king of not only that era, but the king of all of eternity was born, the audience he welcomed into it were shepherds, shows a tremendous amount of humility throughout the incarnation. And then the second thing says, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, Again, is just staggering. Not only does Jesus come and experience the human condition, but then he comes and invites a very humble audience to come and observe. And he's wrapped in the most humbling of attire and where just moments before he was clothed in light. His robe was a heavenly robe, and here he is cold wrapped in these cloths, laying in the trough that was reserved for feeding the very animals that the shepherds were there to watch. And Jesus, in that moment, is teaching us something that is radical, 
Number one, it's, it's important to compare in that culture how kings were treated, specifically when there was a victory, when they would establish something, uh, that there was what was called a day of triumph. And the day of triumph was this Roman tradition where great generals and kings would come on a chariot driven by four horses and that often they would paint their face red to resemble the god Jupiter. And they would be brought up into the temple and there would be feasting and wine and a parade and the town would come and to celebrate the victory of this king. And Jesus is in a feeding trough, wrapped in clothes with no parade, but a couple of shepherds only to watch. The humility of Jesus is staggering. Paul captures this in his letter to the Philippians. When he quotes this ancient hymn, but before he quotes this ancient hymn, he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus did. Be motivated like Jesus was. And then he starts the hymn. He says this, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is this startling contrast between the Greco-Roman celebrated kings from their triumph and their victory and their birth and the king not of Rome, but the king of the universe coming in in stark difference. And Paul, when he's referencing this incredibly unfathomable act, he encourages us, this is the mind of God. This is how God operates. He lowers himself to become like us, to serve us when he never had to, because he was in the nature of God. Yet he considered Equality with God, not something to be grasped. He surrendered those rights that were rightfully his to enter into our story in absolute humility. But here's, here's the model. We're called to mirror that same sort of humility. As followers of Jesus, the incarnation marks our life. And I think that this, this waves loudly in the face of what largely our American culture is built upon, of upward mobility and success and performance and achievement, and you can do it and pick yourselves up by your bootstraps, and all of which are not inherently evil or bad. But for those who follow Jesus, there is a competing narrative that talks about Jesus as God did not consider to reach into the rights that were rightfully his, but rather choose to leave those rights and enter into this story incarnationally as a human being. And Paul's like, this should be your mindset too. You should enter into people's story similar to this. And the only way this works is once we finally realized how, who we really actually are 
in Christ. Because if we don't recognize who we are in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, what they've done for us, it makes a lot of sense to be constantly just striving for someone else, something else to tell us who we are. And humility is just something in the way of what we really want. But if you already know who you really are, just like Jesus did, humility becomes the greatest act of love because he was already completely self-sufficient within the Trinity. And so, and we are invited into that same sufficiency because of his grace. Again, Tim Keller says this, a Christian like Jesus is someone who moves into the Trinity before they move out of the Trinity in love. The incarnation shows us that God moves in love not to meet his needs, but to meet ours. To love like he loves in humility. We must be more concerned with other people's needs more than our own. Our love must not be given to draw attention and affection but to sincerely serve the need of another regardless of praise or recognition. That verse that we just read in Philippians 2, who being in very nature with God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I just want to flip that because this is often how we are. We who are not like God think that being like God is something to be grasped. And the invitation of Jesus, the invitation of the incarnation is that Jesus is identified with our humanness, but he's also invites us to identify with his humility. He gets it. He's lived his life. He's, he's experienced everything that we've gone through. And so there's moments when we feel like we have to just scrape and grasp for our own self-worth and our, uh, making it our own. He says, listen, I already know that. But I'm inviting you into a space of humility. I'm inviting you to think differently. The third thing that comes up through this, this picture in Luke 2 of the incarnation is Jesus' humanness, the humility, but also the heavenliness of this story. If you notice in verse 13, it says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And here's the radical reality of humility within the kingdom of God. Is that although humility might lead you to a path of less recognition, of surrender, of sacrifice, there is another reality taking place at the same time in a heavenly sense that is completely opposite of that. Think about this. On earth, there were shepherds, swaddling cloths. There was no fanfare. It was cold. There wasn't even room in the inn. And in heaven, there is a host of an angelic choir singing for what's happening. That's so important for us to realize because there's, a, there's not just a humility element of the incarnation, there's a heavenly element to the incarnation so that when we live incarnationally, when we live in humility, it's important for us to remember that there is another reality taking place, that what is costing us here on earth is actually being sowed into in a heavenly reality. Just a few verses just to back up that thought. Luke 15, 7 says this, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
So one sinner who's repenting, one sinner who's turning from their ways, and it's costing them something to follow Jesus, that humility is actually resulting in a heavenly celebration. There's a heavenly reality that's different. Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Meaning if you've been persecuted, there's a reward, maybe not here, but in heaven. There's a heavenly reality taking place. Matthew 25, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself um, with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in the heavens that do not fail, where there's no thief approaches and no moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Just a couple more. Revelations 2, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation, but faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Last one, Matthew 6, 4. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so one of, the, one of the lessons and the themes of the incarnation is to remember that what we experience here on earth is not the only reality. And I would argue in a biblical sense, it's not even the primary re- reality. That heaven's reality is what fuels and drives our, our, our incarnational living into humility, into love, into service, into self-sacrifice. Because we have been promised that as we choose to model our mindset and attitude like Christ in humility, that in the same way that God has continued to lift up His Son Jesus, we will be lifted up as well. Now, a, a quick word. Because I know that there's this tension when we talk about humility within the Christian faith. Um, Specifically, in an audience that's probably watching this, we live in a culture that there's a lot of people who are incredibly successful, and you're influential, and you're talented and creative. And there's this thing of like, is that wrong? Is it wrong to experience those things? And I just want to say, in, in my understanding and theologically, is the answer is no. Um, it's what you do with it. And it's what's motivated you to get there that really forms and informs if that is good or bad. Um, notice that it says that, that God exalts the humble, meaning exalting people is not wrong. Otherwise, God wouldn't do it. If it was inherently evil to live in a space of strength, success, um, significance, then God would just say it's overall bad. It's not bad. What's bad is when that becomes your God, when that becomes your sense of security, when that becomes your identity. But it's when you are willing to turn those things over to the Lord and live in humility. Some of the most humble people I know have some of the largest reach, greatest success on the earth, but they choose to live incarnationally in humility. Many people within our own community who practice um, this model of incarnation. And as much as they may be even received here on this earth, because they've chosen to live in the model of Christ's humility, their reward in heaven, I promise you, is significantly greater. Last thing. 
So the incarnation teaches us about, to teaches us about Christ's humanity, his humility, the heavenly reality. And lastly, there's this peculiar phrase that I want to talk about called hiddenness. Hiddenness. Uh, look at the end of Luke chapter 2. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby and who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard about it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What a peculiar thing to happen. Shepherds see thousands of angels, which really hasn't happened um, ever in all of Scripture. I mean, they're seeing something absolutely radical. They come, they see this newborn baby, just as it was said. Nothing is wildly different about that moment other than this is exactly what's been said they go around and start telling everyone the messiah is here the promised one is here mary's response is so unique to me where she doesn't join in but rather she ponders she treasures these things up in her heart and that that posture of hiddenness of treasuring and delighting in these things inwardly actually shows up again and again and again in the life of Jesus. That if you read the Gospels, what you find is Jesus, after he heals someone, what, what, will, he, what will he say? Uh, don't go tell anyone. When someone is given their sight back, go show the priests, like do what's make, make you ceremonially clean. Don't tell anyone else. What does Jesus do when crowds come? He escapes. There's something about what Jesus modeled for us in his ministry of a hiddenness that he tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That within the humility of Jesus, there is a hiddenness that we see here in Mary, we see in the life of Jesus. Even, even you think about for 30 years of Jesus' life, we don't even know what's going on other than a little blip when he's 12 years old. We don't know what is going on in Jesus' life. How, how wild that the like the savior of the world, we only get a, a window of time into his birth and then three years of his ministry. Even his life expresses a sense of hiddenness. Now, many authors and scholars have pointed out that this practice of hiddenness, this teaching of hiddenness, or some call it secrecy, um, but I think sometimes has a negative connotation, but that hiddenness is something that should mark the life of a believer. Let me, let me explain how this is is that um, that we would choose to live out our Christian faith not to be seen, even if it is seen, we're not doing that, but we intentionally try and live into acts of love, service, and humility that are not seen. Pete Scazzaro points that out. He says, 90% of Jesus' ministry, 29 years, was spent in obscurity, hiddenness, and on the unseen. This was an important as his three active years. They provided the character foundation for him to walk through the temptations of the wilderness and the pressures from the people around him. These years also empowered him to live an eternally fruitful life. As a result, when he was active, Jesus was able to resist the evil one and choose God's will to go on to the way of the cross. There is something incredibly powerful 
when we choose to live into acts of love, service, justice, and mercy, when no one's watching, when no one sees, when we practice hiddenness. Um, True story, last night um, we get home after having uh, Thanksgiving with my side of the family, and Jubilee, our 10-year-old, has been on this cooking-like frenzy. Like she's baking something like two or three times a day. She's making pancakes for the family, baking a cake, making everyone smoothies. And we're like, she's 10. We're like trying to encourage it. And Jen does much better than I do. The entire time that I'm watching her bake, I'm just seeing mess accumulate. I'm watching dishes build up in the sink. I'm watching just pancake splatter over there. And we get back last night and I, the, the kitchen is just looks like a bomb went off of a 10-year-old cooking creative explosion. And we get everyone down and to sleep, and, and I go and start to kind of put things away in the kitchen. And the whole time, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind, I can't wait for Jubilee to wake up. I've got to teach her how to clean up better. I've got to, like, she's got to come and help me and all these things. And as I'm doing that, I'm also praying through this sermon, and I'm just reminded of the Holy Spirit just reminds me of, wait, what are you talking about tomorrow? Aren't you talking about hiddenness? Aren't you talking about serving and loving in humility without recognition, without, hey, hey, look what, look what I did. Hey, Jubilee, come here. Do you see all these dishes I cleaned up for you? It, it robs an eternal reward. And more importantly, it's not modeling Christ-likeness. In our, in, if you're married, like if you're doing acts of love, for your spouse only to be reciprocated acts of love, then you're not practicing hiddenness. You're not practicing the way of Jesus. There's something that we need to live into of, of purely living out how Jesus has loved us regardless of what comes back our way. On top of my, my own just confession of me not living into this, um, I've also had so much joy this week of thinking and reflecting about the people in our community who do this all the time. Um, And if I were to tell you their names, then I guess I'd be robbing them of their (laughs) practice of hiddenness. But let's just say um, there there was someone who's very much in need, um, especially during COVID, and wasn't able to leave their house. And I went and checked on them. And they let me know that someone within our church had been to see them every single week, bringing them coffee. And I was like, and the whole time, and this is a friend of mine, I'm like, they never told me. They never told me that they were doing this. I was visiting one of our friends in our community who's homeless, and I was asking her, I'm like, hey, do you need any food? And she's like, oh, no, this family in your church takes me to go get groceries twice a week. Again, no one told me, not that they had to, but I think that was kind of the point. And I, I could tell you dozens of stories like this where I, I, by accident, I stumble upon these acts of love and humility and service by people who they're not doing it for any other reason than this is what Christ has done for them. When Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve, is I think one of the most incredible, miraculous things about the Incarnation. 
And so my, my invitation this week as we jump into Advent is, would we just lean into the humanness, the humility, um, the hiddenness of the Incarnation? And when we live our lives, this is not a story to study and reflect on. This is a model for us to live. And remembering that there is a heavenly reality that is reacting to what is being done here in humility, in hiddenness. And I would just encourage us as we reflect on that this season, what a better time than to find opportunities to bless someone. Just to, just to go and to do an act of love and kindness, an act of justice and mercy, and hope you never get found out. And, and before you start thinking of something spectacular, why don't you start at home? Why don't you go and clean out the car for your brother or your roommate? Why don't you go and do the dishes even though you cooked dinner? And don't make a big deal of it. Um, find ways just to serve those within your own context and beyond your own context. But we don't do this because we are kind of puffed up in our own pride, but rather we have been so blessed by the humility of the incarnation that we are invited into that same way of living. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that the incarnation teaches us so many things. But one of them, and most explicitly, is your humility. And Lord, we just hear the verse in Philippians 2 that says, have this same attitude amongst yourself. The incarnation is an invitation more than it is just a story. And so Lord, I pray you would help us to live into the humanity that we exist in, the, the humans around us, that we'd act humbly. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to do it in a sense of hiddenness. Um, Lord, because that's exactly how you came and how you loved and how you served us. Believing that our Heavenly Father who's in heaven, there's a heavenly reality, will see it, will reward. And for those who have grown weary and exhausted in their in their doing of good, Lord, I pray that you'd restore them and refresh them, even as they're watching this, Lord Jesus. God, give us creative imaginations on how to love and serve people better. And Lord, we thank you that all every act of kindness and servitude, Lord Jesus, that we live into flows from the fact that you have loved us first, you have served us first, you have moved incarnationally into our story so that we can move incarnationally into other people's stories. Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.